Okay, all up. Are you well up in the three and sixes up there? Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll begin. Let me first introduce myself. My name is Professor Nick Cox. I'm in the Department of International Relations. I'm one of the co-founding directors of a foreign policy centre called Ideas. And I'm uh, academic convener of the LSE Summer School, to which you are once again welcome. Um, you know, that's like the fourth welcome you've had since you've arrived. You do a good job on welcomes, you have to say. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted here this evening to introduce a person who is... I'd almost, be, I'd almost say that uh, Meghna Desai, Lord Desai, is a kind of national treasure in about two countries, this one and India. But he certainly is. He's certainly a legend at this particular school. Indeed, I actually think they built the school around him. Um, Meghnad uh, joined the school, I think, in the 1960s, was a key figure in many of the great debates of the 1960s. He's written on Marxist economics, he's written on India, uh, he's written novels, he does everything. He's a, he's, a, he's a Renaissance man in the most complete sense of the word. I'd also have to say, as I was reminded by Professor Richard Jackman, who's also been one of the great founders of summer school here, going back to 1989, Magnad, you were one of the founding fathers. You are, one, you are George Washington to, to the summer school. And I, I think that's a great contribution. He now sits in the upper house called the House of Lords, where he uh, proclaims on many, many issues. But he's going to proclaim on a most important issue here this evening. Uh, the great crash of 2008 causes consequences and the future of the world economic system, a small subject, but it's going to be delivered by a very big man. Can you give a very big well welcome to Lord Magnad Desai? Thank you. Um, You'll have to listen carefully because I've got no notes. And there's <laughs> going to be no, uh, nothing issued later on which you can mug up on. Okay. Uh, you, have, you are a lucky generation because you've lived through the one great crisis of capitalism which uh, came very late in my life. Uh, we used to grow up thinking about the Great Depression of the 1930s. And then we also thought, as economists, that we had the tools in hand to make sure it would never happen again. But just as the war to end all wars did not end any wars, you know, the economic theory to end all depressions did not work either. So what I want to do is I want to kind of uh, take you through uh, the problems of the economy and the problem of the economics and also the problems, since Mick is here, of international relations, of international political economy. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the timeline is very straightforward. Uh, between 1992 and 2007, we had one of the longest booms known in the history of the modern world. It was also a very peculiar boom because it was the first time genuinely the world was globalized. The world has been globalized before. Uh, one episode everybody talks about is late 19th century, uh, in sort of between, say, 1870 and 1914. Uh, the world was increasingly globalized. There was free movements of capital and labor and growth of trade. But in those days, there were empires. There were very few independent countries. Uh, and UK was a leader of the, of the global order in those days. That was a gold standard, which meant no country had, uh, no country which was part of gold standard had any control over its money supply. Money supply was controlled by movements of gold. Uh, it was like being in the euro. Uh, you know, everybody was in the euro. <coughs> and uh, and there, so there was genuinely single, single global currency at that time. Uh, and uh, the, that, that, that uh, whole episode of globalization came to an end because of the First World War. Uh, now, the second, well, the most recent phase of globalization, you know, you can say started any time after the mid-70s, but we can time it from the uh, breakup of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so roughly about eight, 1989, 1991. When, uh, until then, at least a third of the world was non-capitalist, if not anti-capitalist. And suddenly, 
the whole world became capitalist. North Korea accepted. Uh, and, and so you had suddenly new stock markets opening up, you know, sort of new, uh, uh, new, new sort of currencies to speculate in, and the whole huge expansion of financial uh, uh, markets. At the same time, the progress of sort of science, uh, progress of uh, applying statistics uh, to financial markets, uh, led to the creation of lots of new products in the finance markets, which in some, even a lot of the practitioners didn't quite understand. At least older practitioners didn't understand things like derivatives and, and securitization and things like that. Which, which, uh, so then there became many, many more ways of making money by buying and selling money than, than ever was the case before. Now, one peculiar thing about this phase was that there are many more independent countries. For a long time, they were called the third world. And in the, in the course of this boom, the center of gravity of the world shifted from the developed Western economies to the emerging economies of Asia and some Latin American countries. For the first time, we began to take China seriously or India seriously, not just as places where you, where you send your, your surplus food or <laughs> told children if you don't eat, there are starving people in India and China. These were people whose economies affected our economies. I mean, in, the, in 1997, there was an Asian crisis. Asian countries got into a bit of a muddle. And there were people being made unemployed in, in Scotland because South Korea was in trouble. And it, in, it was beyond the imagination of a whole generation of Britishers that what happened in South Korea could actually affect the economy of Scotland. Okay. So what is happening? What is happening was that a large part of capital was moving from here to there, and products made by that capital, manufacturing products made by the capital, were coming back here. That led to one profound influence, which nobody quite appreciated. The threat of inflation in developed countries, which was very big in the 60s and 70s, and some, some extent 80s, disappeared. Because we used to teach uh, inflation mainly due to manufacturing prices. You know, there, were, there were labor costs rising, and productivity was not rising fast enough and there's a profit markup, and this manufacturing prices were, were fueling inflation. Suddenly, manufacturing prices disappeared as a cause of inflation. The only cause of inflation which remained was commodity prices. If China was buying too much metal, too much copper, too much aluminium, or too much oil. So, slowly but without our realizing, the, the shape of the global economy is changing. Now, one thing which happened during this crisis is the developed economies, uh, you know, US, UK, Western Europe, Japan, enjoyed the boom very much, and the sophistication of the financial markets allowed people to borrow uh, in this credit cards and things like that. And very soon, the uh, habit of saving almost disappeared. Household saving became practically zero. And a lot of uh, the consumption and growth was financed by borrowing from abroad. Because, because we're not actually used to, you know, what we talked about globalization, we didn't understand how the financial markets were globalized and you could borrow from China or South Korea without any thinking about it because all you were doing is borrowing on your credit card. The money was indirectly coming from the high savings economies of Asia to the low savings economy of the West, which were richer. Uh, this, allowed, uh, uh, this allowed us, as it were, to run trade deficits and, uh, and budget deficits. The United States, uh, in the last uh, 40 years, has only had two years in which it actually balanced the budget, 1999 and 2000. It has never otherwise balanced the budget, Republican or Democrat. But it was really gross uh, uh, 
deficits under the Bush administration, 2001 to 2008. Uh, and, and indeed, Americans are proudly saying, that the Chinese are saving too much. We are rescuing the world by being the consumer of the last resort. <laughs> now, the problem with debt is that eventually it has to be paid back. Uh, so two things happen simultaneously. First of all, the financial system, uh, which was very sophisticated, very complex, highly interconnected, found that uh, there was a lot of cheap credit available because the Chinese were lending money. Uh, I'll just say the Chinese, but in the Asian. The Chinese were lending money to the Americans. How have the Chinese got the money? Well, the Chinese have sold goods to the Americans. And when Americans paid them back, Chinese lend the money back to say, oh, buy some more. It's like a, like, like, a, like a drug peddler who would sell you drugs, and then when you pay them, he'll give you money back to buy some more drugs. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so this, this is happening. So you, you have this interconnection. Now, some of this money, obviously, some of this uh, consumer credit was kind of, you know, um, viable with, uh, with the people. But eventually, money has to be invested in some assets that will give you a high return. And one remarkable fact of the 1990s and 2000s is while there was growth, there was not that much industrial innovation in the West. When the dot-com boom collapsed in 2000, you guys are too young to remember, when the dot-com boom collapsed, there was a, the dot-com boom was a one interesting industrial innovation which everybody was investing in and technology was advancing. Dot-com boom collapsed around about 2000. And after that, while the money continued to come in, there was no good channels for investment. So a lot of that money went into housing. Across, across UK, UK, US, Europe, all economies decided that invest, investing in house purchase, giving money to consumers to buy houses via mortgage, mm. was a very good business because house prices always increased and never came down, it was believed. A lot of people thought that they don't need to save, they can only buy a house, and you know, a house is, you know, safe as houses investment. <laughs> a variety of things uh, happened, and uh, because the financial markets were very sophisticated, banks could give mortgages, even to not very worthy people. <laughs> In America, of course, so there was an act passed by Clinton to encourage money being loaned to people who would not normally qualify for loans, not creditworthy people, because they were, they were the poorer, the, a lot, lot of black Americans, a lot of poor Americans were allowed to buy a house because of concessionary um, credit terms. Now, uh, the banks were given all this money. Say you, say you had, had 1,000 uh, mortgages for a million dollars each. They could then uh, put these thousand things together, chop them up into a hundred different bits, and sell equity. It was called securitization of mortgage risk. Now, see, because when you pay a mortgage, you don't get money back immediately. You know, you, you pay the house owner or the house builder a million. The house purchase is only going to pay you back over the next 20 years. Here somebody who is going to give you the money back by purchasing the equity that you have sold. So it, it became a very easy and uh, profitable business because there's very little immediate cash cost of constructing these mortgages. But of course, everybody thought that I'm cutting my risk. But it's like a game some of you may know, it's called pass the parcel. Uh, everybody is passing the parcel of their risky thing to somebody else, but somebody else is passing it to them. So each, each bank was holding dubious assets, <laughs> risks of other banks, but it was all very sophisticated, and there was AAA ratings of all these securities and so on. Now, when finally interest rates started rising from a low, when cheap credit finally stopped being cheap, because inflation came through commodity markets, Chinese growth and so on. Once interest rates rose, most of those mortgage investments were no longer viable. House prices stopped rising and the whole housing bubble collapsed. 
At that stage, a lot of people were left with debts uh, for which the corresponding asset had less value than the mortgage. You know, houses are not actually very, very good investments. Let me tell you now before you start. Uh, because houses are very illiquid. And if you buy a car, a car depreciates every six months. And if you buy a car and try to sell it a year later, you, you get ha- hardly half the price. Everybody thinks you buy a house and sell it a year later, you'll get a higher price, which is a fallacy. But uh, so anyway, across Europe and across uh, America, banks found themselves having, holding, holding sort of mortgage debt, which became uh, uncollectible because the housing boom collapsed and more or less uh, the debtors walked away. At which stage the crunch came and the financial system became unviable. The first episode of this was in the UK when a bank called Northern Rock, which was, which was main purpose was to give mortgage loans and it was able, it, was, it, was, it promised to give mortgage loans 125% of the house price. Uh, but you know, it was taking deposits, but it was lending out so much money, it needed more money. So it was buying on the overnight money market and all that at high interest rate. Once the cycle stopped, once the house price of the expectations uh, went, uh, it was realized that the Northern Rock did not have the money to pay back the depositors. The depositors queued up, and the bank had to be nationalized. Then it went to America, and, and, and America, uh, you know, there was uh, Bear Stearns and then uh, uh, Lehman Brothers in September 2008. What we began to realize that we had created an extremely complex, very sophisticated financial system in which if one part failed, you couldn't just take it out and repair it. The whole system, it spread to the whole system. Lehman Brothers are not even a bank. But because it, it had these interlocking transactions with other banks and other financial institutions, each once that bank failed, people didn't know who owed what to Lehman Brothers or who did Lehman Brothers. But they also knew that a corresponding bank which had dealing with Lehman Brothers may be in dire trouble itself. So they would want to lend, they wouldn't want to do business with another bank. So banks stopped doing business with each other. And roughly speaking, the day-to-day business of the economy uh, is sustained by bank loans. Businessmen take loans all the time to, 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 to get over there. You know, they have to incur costs now and the revenues come in later, so to bridge over that gap. Now, once the financial uh, system, the interconnected financial system collapsed, it became very obvious that you could not, as I was saying, you could not take out a single bank, buy it, or repair it, and so on. Many, many banks altogether were in a precarious position because they were uncertain of their own asset position, i.e., they were not sure whether they were technically bankrupt or not. So banks have two sorts of problems. One, they may have uh, no liquidity. They may not have short, uh, immediately available cash to meet deposit demand. Or it may be that their liabilities exceed their assets at the given market prices because their assets have uh, collapsed in price, their share prices collapse and everything, but their liabilities are still very large. So there was a fear of bankruptcy in a, as well as liquidity shortage. So these, uh, we learned uh, that this kind of systemic financial crisis requires a huge injection of liquidity by the government. When all else is uh, broken down, only the government, which has power to print money, can rescue banks. Now, what is interesting about this, when we had rampant inflation in the 70s and 80s, it was the government's power to print money, which was the villain. In which you only could constrain the power of the government from printing too much money, the, the theory called monetarism. So we must control money supply growth, we must, we must, because money supply growth going out of hands would cause rampant inflation. So that was our lesson then. Our lesson now is 
that there are crises at which only by flooding the system with money can you bore the system so that nobody will go bankrupt. And if you give them time, their, their assets will regain value and you'll be able to extract the true value from the assets there are. Okay, so we, we, what you learned is uh, it's financial system stability, which is very important. Until then, all our economic theory was more concerned with short-run problems like unemployment, lack of effective demand, and Keynesian economics had taught us how to, uh, how to stave off the likelihood of ineffective, uh, insufficient demand. And you did that by government spending money, which has a multiplier, and that create jobs, you know, people can dig ditches or whatever it is. The problem was lack of demand, and by employing people, by, by printed money, you employ people, they consume, they employ more people, they, they pay their tax, and the whole system is viable. Our, and uh, when, when, the, when the crisis occurred, obviously because of the malfunctioning of the system, unemployment rose because quite a lot of investments were abandoned. Unemployment rose quite sharply. Output fell quite, quite dramatically uh, in, in, uh, as, between sort of a 6 to 8% from the peak value. And five years later, many economies are not recovered the pre-crisis value of, or pre-crisis level of GNP, uh, the, the gross national product. So the crisis was quite severe in terms of financial stability as well as output and employment. And it then happened that you, the problem of the system in international context was that the rich countries, us, as I said, had stopped saving, had incurred large debts. So the freedom of a government to borrow money and spend it on rescuing, uh, uh, sort of, you know, reducing unemployment was very limited because markets were very nervous of lending money to anybody, including governments. And you suddenly had this big debate uh, between Keynesians and non-Keynesians. Keynesians were saying, this is silly, why worry about debt? Go out to them and spend money, and you know, don't, don't be financially orthodox. And across the developed countries, USA, UK, country, uh, governments of different political hues, all have been reluctant to borrow and get out of a uh, recession. Now the reason for that is that this crisis, this big depression, is not a standard Keynesian crisis like happened in the Great Depression. It is not a problem of lack of effective demand. We are in trouble because we have insufficient savings. Keynes was always worried about people saving too much and he wanted to induce people to spend more. Our problem, we already have spent too much. We got into this crisis by overspending, not by underspending. We got into this crisis by over-indebtedness. Uh, and the debt overhang that we have, uh, sort of governments are, have a high debt overhang, as do, corp uh, as do banks uh, and households. Uh, households in, in the UK at one stage, their debt income ratio was 191%. It's now down to 140, but you know, 191% is a lot of debt to carry. Your, your debt was twice your, your income. And it's very difficult to pay off debt like that because from income, you can at most save about 10%. And you know, you can just calculate how if you're earning 100 and your debt is 200, paying back 10 at a time is going to take a long time before you pay the debt off. Uh, so. Our crisis, because it is of, of uh, what is technically called uh, a stock disequilibrium, not a flow disequilibrium, uh, paying back the debt will take a long time, and economies will not fully recover 
uh, before we are in a much clearer situation about the debt repayment. Who are we paying the debt back to? Now again, in, in, so in, in economic theory, uh, the idea is, oh, debt, government debt doesn't matter. Government debt is something which one part of the citizenry owes to another part of the citizenry. You know, the debt holders are, are, are at home. Our debt holders are abroad. And if not, if the debt holders are at home, it is their pension that, that, uh, that, that, that we, have, we have borrowed from. And we've got to pay them back because otherwise they won't get the pensions they, they saved for. So debt repayment has become a much bigger issue in this century, in this generation, than we thought would be the case for the last 50 years. Which is why this, uh, this recession, depression crisis is unique. It is much more global, it is much more debt-related, it is not related to lack of demand, it, is, it comes out of overspending and under-saving. Of course, there are countries which are over-saving and under-spending, which is Asian countries. But it is difficult to get a match because ultimately the under-savers have to pay back the over-savers all the borrowing they have done. Okay, so now variety of uh, responses have been done. One mainly to say, uh, whatever happens, uh, we cannot, uh, let's buy some time before the debt has to be paid back. Let's put it that way. So central banks like the Federal Reserve and Bank of England have been acting to buy uh, bonds and things like that in order to keep interest rates low. Bank, central banks have decided the one thing, to, one way to buy time was do everything they can, you know, print money, whatever it is, to keep interest rate low by buying what's called open market operations, but buy, buying bonds so that interest rates would be low. And I did, if interest rates were sufficiently low for a long period of time, a lot of the households which cannot actually service their debt if interest rate rose may just about get by. They're called zombie households and zombie firms. I, they, they, they really, they have to, they can just about pay the interest on the debt, but they can't pay the principal back yet. So you buy time. Now, how long uh, will it take for us to recover? Well, there are, there are differences about this. Uh, obviously, the, the United States, given its size and given its uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, energy of the people and so on, looks like it is coming out of the long, uh, long depression first. The recovery is fragile. It is sort of, you know, uh, as, as you might know from following newspapers, uh, this week it looks much more fragile than it looked two weeks ago and so on. But they are out of the very bottom and the economy is growing around about 2%. Unemployment is still very high, 7.5% plus. So it is going to take time, and clearly the signals are that uh, we will have to go on pumping money into the system to keep interest rate low for a long time. In the Eurozone, there is, a, there is the same problem, but the, but the problem they have is that they are tied into a currency where individual governments cannot create money. Hmm. National central banks have no freedom, there's only European central bank. And European Central Bank was created on the principle that no central bank should buy government debt. In the 1970s, 1980s idea, that government's profligacy was at the heart of all of our problems. So European Central Bank was designed to discourage government profligacy, never lend to governments, and, you know, and keep inflation down and money supply under strict control. So, you know, Greece or Spain or Portugal can't do what U.S. and U.K. do. They have their own currency. Greece, they don't have their own currency. They're, they're in the fixed exchange system. And so for their coming out of the crisis is going to be more painful because ultimately they haven't found a device for the countries within the Eurozone which has surplus a surpluses on the balance well and so on to share with countries which are in deficit. 
you know, in, in the U.S., there are deficit states and surplus states, but the federal system does transfer uh, a, a transfer of income, which sort of roughly balances out. Of course, states go bankrupt, Detroit has gone bankrupt, but by and large, the utter misery of uh, one state going down is prevented because there's some federal funds going in for regular budgetary uh, process. There is no federal budget in, in the Eurozone. The entire European Union's budget is 1% of its GNP, which is pathetic. Uh, the entire bureaucracy of the, of the European Union is smaller than any particular ministry in, in, in the UK government. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very, very small system. So it has found itself unable to use the kind of weapons available and known to be available because constitutionally they have chosen not to do it. That and constitution changing takes a long time. So, where are we? How many more minutes have I got? Oh, give you another five. How's that? Oh, okay. Uh, I think several things have happened. Your generation will never have the prosperity that a previous generation has. <laughs> Sorry about that. There you go. We spend the money. We spend have the money. Have a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the reason for that is quite, quite complex, but in a sense, the kind of boom of 1991-2007, it'll be a long time before we revisit that kind of. Obviously, a plateau of income has been reached, which will, which will grow much more slowly than it grew for the previous generation. Okay? Uh, at the same time, there are new forces emerging in the world economy, and those are what we call the emerging economies of China, India, Brazil, and now, of course, in Africa, Nigeria, and so on. What is the secret? Well, they are doing what we did a hundred years ago. They save a lot, they work hard, <laughs> and they, they, they consume, uh, they, they try and export as much as possible, and so they, they live below their means. Let's put it that way. You know, the Japanese, when, when they first started developing, had a system which was called uh, pay now, buy later, uh, which was reversed from what the Western came, which was buy now, pay later. Uh, so you, you kind of actually did not buy anything until you saved enough to be able to pay for it. Uh, we have a very different system, here, different culture here, in which consumption is encouraged by, by borrowing and so on. But, you know, after all, we are, we are maturing. We have been maturing for a long time. They are rising rapidly, growing economies. And so uh, Danny Kwa, who is a professor here, he computes where the center of economic gravity of the world is. It was in mid-Atlantic sometime in the 1950s. It is now somewhere in Central Asia. The whole center of gravity of the world is moved eastwards because those are the emerging rich countries. And we are... We're not quite submerging, but we are sort of just hanging on, not to sink. Uh, and you know, economics is not a not an astrological science, so it can't actually tell you precisely when the full recovery will come. But what it will do, one thing which could happen is, uh, and this is the kind of joker in the pack, a sudden bunch of new inventions innovations. In the history of capitalism, there have been cycles. The man called Joseph Schumpeter, you may have heard of, who, who, who had his theory of capitalism based on uh, cycles of innovation, bunching of innovations, which set of booms, 50-year-long cycles and so on. Now, who knows? There may be something out there. It's not, you know, it's not a thing like Facebook. That, that is not sufficiently to change the uh, production structure. Facebook doesn't change production structure. It changes the use of your leisure time. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but it doesn't actually change production structure. Uh, it may happen, but that's a joke in the pack. You can't rely on it. The ingenuity and high level of education and the entrepreneurship of the countries which are already rich, when they got rich by being entrepreneurial, may work again, for all we know. Or it may be that the big innovation will come from, from out east. What is true is that life is going to be much more competitive for the new generation uh, in, in the Western economies to be able to produce things 
that those who have the money want to buy. Okay? We, we have been so far making sophisticated manufacturing products while they are making simple manufacturing products which we used to make. But they are smart. They too can make what we make. You know, it, it, it's not, not rocket science. So the battle will be with research and development expenditure, innovations, uh, changing of lifestyle, uh, making do with less. Just one example and then maybe I'll just take questions. In the UK, there is an expectation on part of any adult that as soon as the moralists finish school and get their first job, they should be able to buy a house. Right? I mean, that may have been true 30, 40 years ago, but that is no longer the case. And it will not be the case for a long time to come. I mean, it will take them 10 years in their first job before they can begin to think about that. You know, that, that is the kind of consumption cultural change which we will see. And, you know, you know, that really doesn't matter whether you buy a house or rent a house. But our fixation with housing is such that we feel deprived if we don't own a house. Our parents' generation, or rather my generation, did that. Tough luck, you can't. Uh, so on that <laughs> cheerful note, I'll stop. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for that optimistic note. Uh, all of you guys would be poorer than we were, sorry, and don't bother to try and buy a house. Okay. Um, uh, Magna, let me just begin then with the first question, because I've been talking about this today to my own students in, the, in summer school here, dealing in a very similar way to you, but less skillfully, uh, with the financial crisis, because I'm not an economist, therefore I talk about the economy a lot these days. Um, when the Queen came to LSE... Uh, two or three years ago, I mean Queen Elizabeth II, of course, um, she asked an economist at the LSE, a nice young man I remember, why didn't you economists, uh, and you're one of them, by the way, and there's a few others in the audience, uh, why is it you economists didn't anticipate or predict this crisis? Is it, I mean, she didn't go on to elaborate, saying, isn't this, isn't this a failure of the whole economics profession for the last 25 years? Although it was implied in her very good and short question. Um, what, what would you have... How, if the Queen had come up to you, uh, Lord Magnad Desai, and said, why didn't you guys anticipate this or predict it? What, what would you have said? Okay, I'm going to give you three different answers economists can give. A very <laughs> a typical economist, I might say. <laughs> well, the, theory oh, teach, the theories we teach in economics, uh, what's called the neoclassical macroeconomics, mm -hmm. has the idea that if anybody had foreseen a crisis, it would not happen because people would take counter actions exactly. which would prevent exactly. other. This is kind of a, the holy grail. Right? This is what we'll be taught anyway. Uh, it's called... Uh, Dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model. Yeah, uh, cake and eat it too. Anyway, exactly. That idea is that basically, uh, if one could predict a crisis, you could see the prices would fall. You go and start buying things or shorting all equities. I'm sure, and if lots of people do it, it won't happen. It's it's not true, but let, 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 let. a lot of institutions, financial institutions like the IMF. Bank of International Settlements, were burbling about things were getting a little bit out of hand, you know, there were dangers on financial stability and so on. But, you know, there, there's a great truth about this thing. When a boom is on, two things happen. Uh, more and more people think that the boom will go on. And it's less and less likely that that will be the case. You know, uh, Joseph Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, was active in Wall Street and one day when he was getting his shoe shined, the shoe shine boy said, let me give you a stock market of what to buy. He realized at that stage that the market was overextended. He went back to the office, sold all his shares, collected the cash just before the market collapsed. I mean, there were people getting, you know, booms, booms can get overextended. But in, this is an interesting thing about this, and I discovered this in a doing some work on famines 
Uh, I designed an early, uh, uh, early warning system for famines. Mm -hmm. And I was told every famine which has happened has been anticipated and nothing has been done about it. Mm -hmm. People don't act while the boom is on. Central banks don't want to stop the boom in, in case it, you know, they, they get the dating wrong. Nobody believes it. So, to, so yeah, it is a failure of economics, definitely, of, of the theories we teach. But it is also, in a sense, a thing in which people don't want to hear the bad news when they're having a good time. Mm. Because everybody thinks, no, I won't be caught by it. I will, I will get out just before, 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 the, uh, before the turning point. And of course, more and more people are getting into that. Uh, into mm. Lastly, let me put it this way. One thing I have, you know, the kind of things I have told you comes from economic theory, which was the 1920s economic theory. Mm. Theory which we have forgotten. Mm. Uh, and to, to some extent, there's a, a great economist, maybe one of the greatest economists, a man called Knut Wicksell, uh, a Swedish economist, who more or less figured out that if people can borrow money at a rate which is less than what they can make by investing it, uh, there'll be huge borrowing upsurge. And this, this cycle will go on and on, people will go more and more and more investments on, until a time will come when the banks will feel nervous about lending out too much money, and they'll put up interest rate, and the whole boom will collapse. <coughs> the rate of interest will go above the rate of profit you can make, whole cycle is reversed. Now, you know, Complicating the part, that's more or less what has happened. And every time there is, and, and he, he, he wrote this in the end of 19th century. The, the fundamental truth is that if, if credit becomes too cheap, and governments like credit being cheap, there will be trouble ahead, because people will start doing foolish things with the money which is very cheap, which is what we did with the subprime housing. We did knowingly foolish things, Mr. Pramasu. And not just, not just American banks, but European banks got into securitization. They were also taking a punt on the subprime housing market. So there's something about cheap credit that does it. And uh, it is predictable that uh, booms will happen which will collapse because they're unsustainable. One thing is true, I would say. What I would uh, conclude from this crisis is that the growth we had between 1991 and 2007 was in some sense unsustainable because it was not based on genuine savings and uh, booms built on credit are not sustainable. Okay. Okay, I think the Queen is satisfied. Well, uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay, we listen to horses. Uh, <laughs> well, she asked a good question at least. Uh, we've got quite a lot of hands going up here in the, in the balcony, so why don't we take a couple up there, uh, just at the front here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need a, you need a mic, and then just pass it back. Uh, make, it, make it a short and sharp question, please. Yes. Yeah. According to this financial crisis, you don't think that that the payment structure of the financial sector is a problem. Are bankers being paid too much? Is that what you're asking, basically? Yeah, yeah you know, it, it, is, yeah. it, is, it oh. is a third order That's problem. Uh, in a third order, in a sense that banks were paying too much because they're making a lot of money. Uh, and, and, you know, if you make a lot of money, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And because banks are ultimately, as the investment banks, are kind of joint enterprises in which everybody sitting at a desk is making money for you. Right, so you're rewarding enterprises and so on. Uh, no, you know, the structure of credit and interconnectedness and so on uh, was part of the problem. And also, this for the first time in human history that there are so many financial markets in which we could, we could invest. I mean, uh, the financial sector exploded because there are many, many more stock markets, many more currencies. To invest. And, you know, that, uh, for a while when I was, uh, uh, was teaching here, all my uh, third year uh, duties were going to go into investment banking. Hmm. And I would say, who's going to be a bus conductor for God's sake? Uh, <laughs> but, right. you know, there's always. But that's the way markets work. You see, markets don't work in an orderly way. If they did, we wouldn't be so rich. You know, capitalism has to work through cycles. You know, we pretend it has to be stable, but it never has been. 
And that is how we become rich. <laughs> so anyway, we were trying to do something about salary structures and capital asset ratios and all that. There will be another crisis, don't worry. I'm moving back rapidly along the line there. Gentleman there with yeah. it in. Hi, um, thanks for the talk so far. Now, you just mentioned briefly, you said if credit is low and governments like keeping it low, you're going to lead to another crisis. Or wasn't that the solution we just had to this crisis? To flood the market with more money to keep yeah. credit low? Yeah. And now it's my generation that's going to have to pay for it. Don't you expect the crisis to kind of blow up again? And, oh, just, yeah. and just to have an impression. <laughs> <laughs> and Magna. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an astrologer, so I yeah. can't tell you when it will happen. Hey, Megas, I, I actually went to HSBC Bank today to find out. And I've got it here. The English base rate currently is at 0.50%. Mm. And the levels of savings are equally low. So if part of the problem is no savings and very low interest one, rates, one we're in trouble. Is, one of the problems is that right now we cannot recover unless we postpone repayment of the debt. Why don't you let them go bankrupt? Sorry? Like a lot of people said, you know, you're like my well, parents' generation were the one no, that overspent, no, but, so but, why am but, I paying no, for no, it? No, but, 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 but the thing is that yeah, uh, because the banking system yeah. is interconnected, if the entire bank, the danger was if the entire banking system collapsed, there would be starvation on the street. Yeah, exactly. Serious starvation on the street. Because we were used to sophisticated instruments. We, we would like our credit cards, we like our ATMs, and suddenly, suppose you didn't have money. Nobody could get money. Exactly. Suppose. You know, that is what uh, the American Treasury Secretary faced the prospect of after uh, uh, mm -hmm. Lehman Brothers and a Republican president said do what you have to do, 800 billion dollars uh, were spent because it, you know, the, whole, the whole place was on fire and you could not say oh you know let them suffer, we'll sit back. They even had to uh, give money to banks which didn't need money just in case the interconnectedness of the system. I mean, we have learned a lot because much of the macroeconomics we teach has no a theory of banking in it. Entire macroeconomic model, I told you about the dynamic general equilibrium, etc., has nothing about banking, nothing about finance, nothing about credit. Your consumption, investment, money supply, and all that. And we've been carrying on. Banks have been there, everything, but we've been carrying on as if we don't need them to understand how the economy works. So another answer to the Queen's question is, yeah. man, we have not been teaching this stuff, so how would we know how that has gone wrong? How stock markets and economy interact. Yeah, bits and pieces we know, I mean, there that, are that section studies. But we have to relearn, and we have to kind of, you know, relearn the reality in which we live. Because it was so easy for 20 years, that, that, there's no push to do any better. Now can I be pushed to do better? Thank you. Yeah, and, and don't blame your parents, okay? Go, <laughs> go easy on mum and dad. Yeah, gentlemen there in the front, yeah, please. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to ask uh, what you think of Paul Krugman's idea that this is primarily an issue of aggregate demand, whatever he's these structural he's causes wrong. may be. No, I said he's wrong. No, I said, I said this is not a crisis of lack of effective demand. This is a crisis. We got into this by excessive spending. Yeah, yeah. And under saving. This is a crisis of saving. The most profound crisis of the Western world is that with an aging population, we are saving far too little. So you think the solution is to save more rather than to spend more in the short term? Absolutely. I have, I have backed George Osborne's austerity drive as a lone voice on the labor backbenches, and at last everybody agrees with me. I bet you're popular, yeah? <laughs> I don't want to be popular. No, I know. Right. No, no. right. yeah, okay. Let's. Uh, there's uh, another hand over there, and I'll, I'm going to take. The, I'm going to take one from up there. No, I've got two down what here. Are these downstairs? I've got them. Yes. Okay. It's all under control, Magnat. It's all under control. Yeah. Gentlemen up there. Then we're coming downstairs. Yeah. Uh, what you're saying on the global level? What's about personal level? How to survive future crisis on personal level? You're saying saving, but saving for a person doesn't make sense because value of money going down because of inflation. You're saying the property is not good investment. Again, it's contradict what you're saying about inflation. So how to survive on personal level? 
this kind of crisis. But you know, one of the things which is, uh, one thing we learned in the 70s and 80s is that inflation, how to not to get inflation beyond control. Okay? So, in 1975, inflation rate in the UK economy was 25%. Okay? Nothing will happen. We know enough not to let it go beyond 5% anywhere. Right now, the central banks are caught with the dilemma that inflation is too low. The Japanese central bank is desperate to raise the rate of inflation because it is in a deflationary cycle. So not all inflation is bad. So, you, you know, if real, if real incomes are rising, I, I know, you probably are German. Germans are obsessed about inflation because... <laughs> because no, I may not be German. German. <laughs> I'm a German, but i No, no, the Germans... This is Merkel's son, I know, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, now, The Eurozone crisis comes from Germany's obsession with inflation. But yeah. I won't go into that. that that'll take me a long time. Mm. Now, the thing is, if your real income is going up, you can absorb inflation as long as it's not excessive. You know, a 2 to 3 percent inflation is something the world has lived with for a long time. Uh, and so the idea is can you actually not let it get out of control so much that real incomes fall behind and households suffer? We lived through that in the 1970s. We very much lived through that and we took a lot of pain in the 80s through retrenchment and recession to get out of the system. And we constructed our central banking doctrines on the idea of the Deutsche Bank, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the German uh, uh, central bank. And the European Central Bank has been set up on that. The whole notion of central bank autonomy comes from that. All central banks have inflation targeting. So, but it is difficult to say all inflation is bad, therefore let, let's resume. That, that, may, that may lead to a severe and continual stagnation in the economy. And that is also not a good thing. Yeah. Okay, I've got a question over here, lady there, and there's a gentleman in blue shirt over there. Take those one and two, please. Uh, yes, uh, forgive me if I'm very naive, but um, if we just look at a broader view, like uh, human society, if we assume that humans... Are, uh, make the society, and if the society uh, brings us into trouble, may it, whatever system you call it, capitalist or whatsoever, and uh, I want to refer to, I think it was von Hayek who says that every system carries the seeds of its own destruction, um, would you say that there is something fundamentally wrong about uh, our current system? I think no. Karl, Karl Marx no. said that too. No, no. Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a very Marxist question, very good. No, no. The thing is, that, you know, lots and lots of people, moralists and Marxists, uh, have been disturbed by the fact of capitalism. Uh, you know, in <coughs> earlier we had orderly systems where people told us what to do and all that. And capitalism is a chaotic system. It's a dynamic, disciplinary system. And a lot of people think, my God, it'll end, it's evil, it's an but it is a fantastic energy, and it has brought prosperity to more and more people. In the last 20 years, more people have got out of poverty than ever before in human history. And they got out of, from capitalist growth. Globalization and the, the transfer of capital to Asian countries, they converted that into industrialization and growth. Rural uh, population migrated. Of course it's messy, but eventually people come out of poverty because of the system. I don't, you, know, you know, I think all hopes that the system will come to an end will be disappointed. Yeah. Let me tell you, not only not within my lifetime, but even in your lifetime or in your grandchildren's lifetime, the system is not going to come to an end. That's a bit of a prediction. You just have to live with it. Okay, you heard it at first. Capitalism will go on forever. From Magnet. You old leftist, what happened to you? Yeah, where's your. Capitalism lasted thousand years. And Washington capitalism lasted thousand years. Okay, gentlemen in blue, that'll be, and then we'll have a very last question in the middle there because we want to move up to a reception upstairs uh, immediately afterwards. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so uh, you said that there, um, 
that there needs to be action to, or that action needs to be taken to solve the imbalances that are going on between countries that are running sur- or surpluses and countries that are running deficits. Yeah, in the United States, certainly, the political conversation is much more about solving domestic issues and encouraging growth versus solving global imbalances. So, what can we do as econ- as students of econ- or of economics as like our generation to mobilize um, domestic forces to be more concerned about the international imbalances and the international economic structure? Well, you know, I believe in the power of ideas. Only ideas solve problems. You are the generation who will have to invent the new economics which will solve the problem. So I, I, I mean, I mean, you know, there was, after the Great Depression of the 1930s, the big slab of 1945 till about 1975 was the Keynesian golden uh, period. You know, we looked like we solved our problems. Growth was regular and, and inflation was low and things like that. And we thought we had cracked it, hmm. right? Now it seems like we missed out something. We haven't quite, quite cracked it. That generation and Keynes himself was worried about excess savings and therefore they had to, wanted to keep spending up and so on. They were not worried about inflation. What I think we have learned from this, and this is where I, I said, you know, I disagree with Paul Krugman about it. What we learned from it is we have to reinvent or relearn old economics to be able to apply it to today in new guise, in a new line. Uh, sort of old one in new bottles. I mean, for example, I still believe that the uh, insights of Excel and Hayek are more or less explained when, when, when I look at the world. But there's a lot of work to be done. You know, we, none of, no economic, all, most economic theory are a single economy, closed economy models. We would encourage that because American, uh, America is large enough to ignore the rest of the world. But even America now can't ignore the rest of the world. There are three trillion uh, Treasury uh, security owned by the Chinese. If the Chinese decide to go out one fine morning, wow, you know. So, but how do we understand this system? How do we understand the interconnections of this debt and international flows and so on? There's a lot of work to be done. So get on with it. Right. Okay. That's that's that sorted him out. And uh, well, I don't, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I don't know where the new theory will come from. It we don't know, but it may, may come from that gentleman in blue shirt. And uh, okay. up to you. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for your talk. And um, my question is regarding your talk about the rising power of the emerging markets, yeah. as well as a lot of balance of payments problem in the Western countries and the developed countries. Um, recently, there have been a lot of talks about a BRICS bank. And I'm just wondering how would you go about like this possibility of having a such bank might change... Um, the world economic system. Maybe maybe put the money. Complete waste of money. (laughs) Complete and utter waste of money in my view. There's no shortage of banks in the world. What will that bank do which will be different from any other bank? Well, there will be more focus on the infrastructure, like where the money goes. None of none of these countries, none of the BRIC countries have yet suffered shortage of loans. They've been able to borrow, they've been actually lending to the world. I mean, I think it it is based on this old-fashioned sort of 1950s idea, we want to show we are bosses. And America has got IMF. We will have our own IMF to show that we have arrived. It's, it's, it's It's a power plot. It makes absolutely no economic sense. You know, I mean, we want one to think of abolishing IMF, but that's another story. Uh, I think it should be abolished. But, uh, you know, it's a pure showing off that China, or the BRICS have arrived in the world, and they can have their own bank build their own reserves. There's a better way of using your money. In more general terms... But, you know, what is interesting so, is, yeah. forget about BRICS. They, they are the passé. The new things are happening in Africa. Within 10 years, we're going to be talking about Nigeria as a really big economic power. I think on, on that That's note... That's the beauty oh. about capitalism. It goes, on, 
it goes on destroying and creating, <laughs> destroying and creating, and the top dog the one generation and the bottom dog the next generation. Right, so the bricks are passe. You're all going to have a miserable existence for the next few years. Don't bother to try and get a house and blame your parents for all the problems you're facing, okay? Um, I think on that particular note, I shall bring the event to an end, only to say once again to you, thank you for your great questions. We always get great questions at the LSC, I must say. And I'd also more importantly thank the speaker this evening, Lord Magnad Desai. Thank you very much, Magnad.